Welcome to the Garden Angelist, where we talk about flowers, veggies, and all the best dirt. My name is Carol Michael from Indianapolis. And I'm Dee Nash from Guthrie, Oklahoma. Hi, Dee. Hi, Carol. Is it sunny there today? It has been sunny, and it has been very warm the last few days, and I actually, in January, went out into my garden and did some stuff yesterday. Well, I just saw a wasp just now inside my kitchen, right where I'm recording this podcast, and he's fly, he or she is flying, I guess she, is flying in the window, and I was a little bit startled. Yes, it's been warm here. We have wasps that have been emerging a little too early, but I say that's okay because they will die. Yeah, the the it's going to be eleven degrees tomorrow morning. So this this warm up spell's not going to last. But it gave me it gave me a chance to go outside and kind of check things out. And while I was at it, I grabbed my reciprocating saw and I cut down my grapevine because I'm getting rid of the grapes. Oh, you are! You finally gave up on the grapes. What made you do that? Well, um, I'm just trying to simplify things. And the grapes, as you know, they need to be trimmed up every spring. And they can get rather unruly by the middle, late summer with vines going everywhere. So I want something there that kind of makes a uh, a border between the vegetable garden and the rest of the garden. And I think I'm going to go with something else besides the grapes, obviously, because I cut the grapes down. How, what are you considering? Well, I'm going to wait and tell you next week oh, on next week's of podcast. Course you're going to surprise me. Yes. Okay. It's going to be a big surprise. cool. I went out and looked at my garden, too, this week. We had snow just about four days ago, and then it got up to, like, I don't know, 45 degrees the next day, so the snow all went away. But it was a very pretty snow, and then I didn't go out that day because I was too busy. But I went out yesterday, and it looks like it always does this time of year, just kind of brownish. But, you know, I can see small green daffodils about a half an inch above the surface of the soil so that we're right on track very good and I will tell people you know it warms up in January and they think well I'm going to go out and do my spring pruning and just get caught up and I say hold on don't be doing stuff like that because it is going to get cold and it may seem okay to prune but then that cold weather comes and that that plant does not like it so The reason I cut back the grapes is because I want them to die. I don't want them anymore. So that's the kind of stuff that you would cut back on a warm January day when you can get out into the garden. Stuff you want to die. (laughs) Or get rid of. Are you going to dig them up? I think you're going to have to dig them. The grapes. Uh, Yes, I've got it down to the ground, but I'm going to have to dig up that stump because otherwise I'll have little grapes vines coming up all over the place and that's not going to be nice no it's a little bit like a honeysuckle you know well you think you got rid of honeysuckle um, but you have not and grapes are kind of the same way that's true so um brand new year 2019 and so i declare this to be the year as always of my best garden yet best garden ever that's right the gar- the but garden in our imagination the- is always the best garden ever <laughs> Right. Or or the old saying, when somebody comes to see your garden, it's like, well, you should have seen it last week or last season. This was really nice. <laughs> exactly. Or next week, this will be blooming. But right now, X is blooming or it's just finished. Yeah, that's the gardener's lament. Yes, that's true. But our, our friends at the National Garden Bureau actually do give uh, the year of awards, I guess you would call them, or designations for different annuals and perennials and bulbs and vegetables. So 
for flowers today I thought and vegetables, I thought we could talk a little bit about the year of as designated by the National Garden Bureau. Maybe we should talk first about what the National Garden Bureau is. That's a good idea. <laughs> Dee, go ahead. <laughs> good idea, Dee. Go hard ahead. That's to say, isn't it? <laughs> um, the yes. Ins- okay, so the Garden Bureau, um, the, it was the inspiration of a man who was named James H. Burdett, which is the name of my high school um, journalism teacher, so I think that's awesome. And it was born, as they said, in 1920 after World War One, because he noticed people were moving to the suburbs and there were fewer farmers. And so he felt like suburbanites needed to have some garden knowledge. And then it really became popular during World War II, during when the government had people call start doing victory gardens. And so uh, the National Garden Bureau did some books about the Victory Garden Manual, and they also did some posters and some other things. And their chief thing that they do, they're a nonprofit organization who just try to get the word out about gardening, how best to garden, best practices, and they work with garden communicators all over the world to do this. And their website, ngb.org, is a great place to start as far as a resource for gardening if you are just getting started or if you're experienced like you and I are, they just have tons of good information because you can't know it all. Yeah, they have great information, and they also are part of the – don't they also do the All-American Selections each year, which is a testing of certain yes. plants? We can talk about that another day, but um, it's a great place to go see which new seeds, new varieties, and some old varieties, which ones do really, really well in your part of the world. That's one thing that you can get right. on there. You can get lots of things. So they've decided that this year for annuals is the year of the Snapdragon. Yes, the Snapdragon, which I, you know, I have a lot more luck with Snapdragons than I ever have before. How do you do with Snapdragons? I do pretty well with Snapdragons. They're one of those flowers you can kind of plant and then um, you can't really forget them because they do best if you do deadhead them periodically so that they keep forming new flowers. It's one of those flowers that you remember as a kid because you'd pick off those little florets and then kind of squeeze them and make them talk. That's right. They, you can make them snap. That's why they're called snapdragons. So they're a wonderful plant, and um, I, I like them a lot. You know, they don't do so well here in the middle of summer, although there are some newer varieties that I've bought at various um, places, and they're doing better than they used to. I plant them in a little bit of sun and um, in the fall and also in the spring, and I actually had some make it all the way through summer last summer. They didn't bloom very much midsummer. It was too hot, but then they started blooming again in the fall. That's right, and, and that's, it should be pointed out that the snapdragon is one of those flowers that will tolerate light frost. Not a real heavy frost, but they'll tolerate a light frost in the spring, so I wouldn't be afraid to plant them early. Exactly. You can plant them very early here. As soon as you see them out at the box stores or at your local garden nursery, plant them because in Oklahoma it gets hot fast sometimes. Well, and then here in the summer, you know, they, they're not going to bloom their fool heads off all summer, but they'll, they'll survive and uh, a new flush of growth in the fall. So I like snapdragons. I think it's a great choice for an annual to grow for 2019 it is a great choice so what was their next one that they have don't they have a bulb yeah they have a bulb and this year the it's the year of the dahlia the year of the dahlia which isn't really a bulb it's more of a it's more of a tuber but it is but we're being technical here so yes and the dahlia tubers are edible 
Ask our friend Alan Zakos of the Backyard Forager. I actually have never eaten a dahlia tuber, so I believe you that they're edible, but I'd, they're so hard to grow here in Oklahoma that I would hate to start eating them. I would have to be very hungry. Yeah. And then I can just hear Ellen saying, oh, but they're so delicious. Yeah, she says that about all those things she forages. I'm not so sure sometimes. But I have eaten some of Ellen's food before, and it is delicious. So um, as far as dahlias themselves, I have the best luck in Oklahoma growing the ones that are um, Bishop of Landaff or the ones that have the smaller the smaller flower head, I do not do so well with dinner plate dahlias. They just do not do well at all. So I do more for that type. How about you? Um, I don't grow a lot of dahlias, but I know as a kid, my dad always had a big row of dahlias, and he liked the, what they call the cactus flower dahlias. Mm-hmm. They're pretty. Which uh, I guess would be not quite as big as the dinner plate. And the dinner plate dahlias are called that because the flowers are as big as a dinner plate. A small dinner plate. Not like the dinner plates we have now, but yes, a smaller dinner plate. Um, One thing I was... A 1950s Yeah, one. 1950s dinner plate when we all ate less food. I was going to say that, you know, dahlias are a member of the Asteraceae uh, family or the composite family of plants. And those, what other plants do those include? I know you know. The sunflower? Well, it includes sunflowers, zinnias. There's a ton of them. It's the largest plant family. You think so? Because I'm going to challenge you on that. Oh, you really don't? It isn't? What's the largest plant family? The orchid family. Oh, you're probably right. The orchid family is the largest family. Oh, I didn't know that. But if you look around the the usual suburban garden, I think you will find more aster, aster family members than many other flowers around. You will find tons of them. At least in the northern hemisphere. Maybe in Thailand or someplace you could find more orchids because that's where they grow. Right. Although <laughs> we'll have to talk about orchids someday. I've got a whole book on orchids of Indiana that grow naturally right, here in the wild. Right. We have a. I think we have. And one. there's a lot of them. Yeah, I think Oklahoma has one or two, but we don't have a lot of them. Not like some places. I was thinking more like tropical orchids. I wasn't thinking about the hardy orchids. Okay, so dahlias are part of that aster family, and they are related to zinnias. So here's my question for you. Since they're related to zinnias, and you know how you talked about cactus flower dahlias? You know, I can't grow cactus flower uh-huh. dahlias worth a hoot, but I can grow cactus flower zinnias. I wonder why they both have that flower structure. That's, an, that's kind of an unusual one for, the, for that family. That family's usually kind of got a daisy look. But maybe I'm just showing my ignorance. No, I mean, it's through plant breeding and everything, they've just developed all these different varieties. Yeah, it's just interesting that they each have a, a cactus one in there. When we should explain right. that, what it looks like. It looks like a Raggedy Ann doll. That's what it reminds me of. Yes. And there are people that just go mad for dahlias and belong to the Dahlia Society. And I, I talked to a guy um, at a garden show last summer who was just wild about dahlias and he had all kinds of tubers for sale and he was showing me you know if you can see a little eye on the tuber similar to a eye that you would see on a potato tuber that means it's a viable tuber and one that would grow and so he sold me some and then he told me the best way to start him would be to get a um, old black plastic pot at least a gallon size if not bigger Mm -hmm. and start him in that 
And then he recommended, and I'm sure there's people that say, oh, no, 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 no. But he sinks the entire black pot then into the garden. Interesting. And lets it grow in the pot in the ground. And then he says in the fall, because you have to dig dahlias up in the fall around here because they won't overwinter, you just dig up and pull up basically that whole pot. And then you would want to take the tuber out of the dirt and clean it off and let it dry a little bit and keep it someplace kind of cool and dry. He's shaking her head at me. I just, I'm just wondering, do you do all that? Did you do that with your dahlia tubers? Did you go to that much trouble? No. <laughs> no, because we, we have established, D, that you and I are not that, uh, well, you know, I, we're kind of lazy. That's why I was shaking my head. We're, I mean, I, I'm all for, I've started them in big black pots too, and grown them in the greenhouse to give them a head start because they bloom so late in the season in Oklahoma. Um, but the idea of digging a big giant hole to put that one gallon pot in, First of all, I have you know I mean, I know in in somewhere in your gardening life you have buried a plastic pot or two right in your garden. Right, it's a pain right. in the patootie, isn't it? It is. <laughs> but I don't want to take anything away from the year of the dahlia. I no, think that they're worth I grow growing. Them in the ground directly after I get them out of the pot. I put yeah. them in the ground directly, and certain varieties they do well here, like Juanita. That's an old old variety that you can get from old house gardens. I've grown that for several years and I didn't even have to dig it up. It lasted for four to five years. And then finally it just got a little too cold. And then that was the end of that one, but I was ready to do something else there. So no, I'm not taking away anything away from dahlias. I'm just not going to dig a hole and put a plastic pot in it. And I just am not doing that. Okay. (laughs) Well, I have one last thing to say about dahlias, and they they are pretty, and they they kind of get under people's skin, so to speak, and then they see those big dinner plate ones, and they want to grow them. And you and I both toured gardens in Buffalo, New York in the summertime, and I will tell you there are some people there that grew some beautiful dahlias, and it makes you want to grow beautiful dahlias. I also remember seeing some in San Francisco at the Botanic Garden. And they had a whole giant area of dahlias, and some of them were the dinner plate, and they were beautiful. And remember, you have to stake those, the ones that have the great big heads. In fact, I staked all my dahlias. They're too they're too floppy, even the smaller ones, unless they're short. If it's a dwarf one, that's a whole different thing. But if it's a tall one that has even a small flower, I felt like they had to be staked or at least propped up. Right. Well, in the interest of time, they do have one other. They have uh, the year of Salvia uh, Nemorosa. Nemorosa, which is yeah, which is a perennial Salvia. Uh, the most common variety that I've seen around here is May Nights. Yeah, and that is a hardy perennial. Very. It grows probably coast to coast. It's a very hardy perennial. Yeah, and it's worth putting in the perennial border. I think. Okay, I have to disagree here. I'm sorry. I don't like May night. That's okay. I grew, Go ahead. I grew May night for years, and yes, it's very, very hardy, and it's not a bad plant. It really has a bad habit in my climate of dying out in the middle, um, so it, its clumps don't look very good after year three, so then you have to divide it, and it's it's a lot of work in that you have to divide it quite often. I would say instead grow Salvia Nemorosa Caradona or Caradona. Because it's a beautiful color. I think it's prettier than May night. It does have smaller bloom spikes, but beautiful color. 
almost iridescent and it has a very nice neat habit and you don't have to it grows a little slower than may night so that's my vote you can like may night though well i think i like may night mostly because of the name may nights because i call my garden may dreams gardens so to have may night salvia kind of fits in with that whole thing well that works for you i like it the one thing i will say about it is for me it's one big flush of bloom And then I cut it back, and you might get a few straggler blooms, but it is not an all-summer blooming kind of flower. No, it's not. It really has very distinct bloom times. I think Cardona, I I want to call it Cardona, it's Caradona. Um, I'm trying to remember if it, if you you deadhead it, it'll bloom about once every two months. So kind of the same thing. I think if you want another type of salvia, like what's the one about, oh, May blooms, I can't think of the name of it right now. There's another salvia out there that um, has a better a better bloom. Yeah, here we are. It's a different type. Salvia mystic spires blue gets much taller than the salvia nemorosas, and it but it has great big bloom spikes and it blooms all summer. But for that, you pay you you pay with it not being quite so hardy. So you know you have to kind of figure out which salvia works best in your garden. Mystic Spires Blue is not reliably hardy in my Zone 7A garden, so it probably wouldn't be hardy in Indiana, but it'd be a great summer flower. True. All right. You're the pumpkin. Yeah, you're the pumpkin. Okay, so the pumpkin is this year's vegetable of the year, according to the National Garden Bureau, and everybody likes pumpkins because all we hear about when fall starts is pumpkin spice latte and pumpkin everything else. But how do you grow these babies? Well, if you're going to grow a pumpkin, you need to give it a ton of space. Tons. A pumpkin, and I I grew some last summer. Um, They like it warm, so it's the last thing to plant in in the spring, late, late spring. Around here, I wouldn't even really put it in the ground until after Memorial Day. I would probably agree with you. You want it to, you know, doesn't it take nine, about 90 days? I've, I've grown pumpkins many times, but I haven't grown one in the last few years. But um, I want to say 80 to 90 days to fruit and to ripen. So, um, but don't, you know, I may not have that right. But close to that. That's about right. Yeah. So whatever you do, you want it to ripen about the time that the weather starts to cool off so that you can make pumpkin pie if you're doing like sugar pumpkins or to be a Halloween decoration if you're doing other kinds of pumpkins. So I would say, you know, we we definitely grow ours after Memorial Day, too. And then, like I said, you and I'm always shocked because I don't grow pumpkins every year, but I had a big bare spot and... I bought a couple pumpkin seedlings, and they were literally labeled pumpkin, and put them in there because I knew it would cover up that spot and mostly choke out most the weeds. But I, you know, then I didn't pay attention. I go out a couple of weeks later, and I'm like, oh, my God, this, this thing is bent on vegetable garden domination. Yeah, that's pretty much a pumpkin's uh, operation is that they like to dominate the entire vegetable garden. So basically they need a whole lot of space. They need a whole lot of water, right, and some good fertilization and a bunch of sun because they are a squash, right? So That's right. Um, but here's the problem with pumpkins in Oklahoma. You can grow them. It's very hard to grow them organically. Want to know why? Why, Dee? 
I'm not saying I'm not saying it can't be done, but it's hard because of the dang squash bugs. Squash bugs are such a big problem in the state of Oklahoma that it makes it very hard to grow pumpkins without using some sort of a pesticide. In my garden, I don't like pesticides. So I that's really why I quit growing pumpkins. But that doesn't mean I don't love pumpkins. And I love that other states where the squash bug isn't as much of a problem, that they grow pumpkins for me so I can make pies with them and also do other things. Now, I have set, I have grown this sugar-type pumpkin before, and because it fruits pretty fast and matures a little faster and such, I've found that it, you know, I had a little better luck with it organically, but not the big pumpkins. I can't do it anymore. No, and then the other thing about the pumpkin vine is... And we get some squash bugs, but they're not, um, I've never seen, let's just say the squash bugs did not take out my pumpkin vines last year. But they can also get powdery mildew really bad, which that's kind of unsightly, but there's nothing you're going to spray for. No. It just looks like somebody dusted white stuff all over the leaves. What about squash vine borer? Do you guys have trouble with it? Not really, or at least I usually don't in my garden. And the way you'd recognize you have a squash vine borer is uh, you'd go out there one day and like one whole vine would be dead. Right, or wilted. wilted, Looking bad. And you you would probably find the borer inside that one, and you simply need to cut it open and take that borer out and kill it. Yeah. Which is kind of nasty. It is a little nasty. Carol's saying that because I'm making a face because I've definitely done that before and it's kind of gross. But you know, it's you got to do it if you're going to grow those great vining squashes like pumpkins. You're going to have to deal with, especially down here with squash vine borer. But anyway, I don't want to discourage people from trying pumpkins. Go ahead and try them. They should definitely grow them. Yeah, try them. And and if they don't work out, don't feel bad. Yeah, mine took up a like an area that was about ten feet by twenty feet. And out of that 10 by 20 feet, also, you're not going to get a ton of pumpkins. I got three. Right. Which is about right. That's about right. So let's talk, let's talk a little bit about people who get obsessed with pumpkins. You know, we talked about people who love dahlias join the Dahlia Society. But people who get obsessed about pumpkins, they join a whole different class of vegetable garden growers. Oh, yeah. That, this is part of our dirt. But some of these guys, I just got to say, they're a little bit nuts about these pumpkins. These guys and gals, I'm assuming, they are obsessed with growing, like, the world's record largest pumpkin. Yes. And 10 years ago, that was, like, 1,000 pounds. And you and I just looked it up, and it's over 2,300 pounds now. Right. Which is a large, large object. <laughs> <laughs> it's an object so large that like people have to have special hauling trucks for them and special cranes oh, yeah. and they have to grow them on top of of things to maneuver them slings so that they can get them up and move them i mean it's i watched a whole show on it one time and i was just fascinated but also a little creeped out <laughs> yeah there, and i read a book and the book's from 2008 but it's called backyard giant the Passionate, Heartbreaking, and Glorious Quest to Grow the Biggest Pumpkin Ever by Susan Warren. And the reason why it's heartbreaking is these guys can spend thousands of dollars, hundreds of hours, and then walk out there like the day before the big way off and find that the pumpkin has developed a fungus and it's worthless. Right. And, you know, it's turning to mush. Or squash bugs And that's got the to heartbreak it. of it. Yeah. 
and it's over with. Or, I mean, you know how any vegetable crop is. Things can happen. And so pumpkins are definitely one of those that um, people can just break their hearts over. But if you decide that you, dear listener, want to grow one of those giant mammoth pumpkins, there's some things you need to know first. Well, first of all, not just any seed will do. You have to buy a variety like Atlantic Giant that is going to grow a big pumpkin. And, you know, these guys, when they grow these super humongous pumpkins, the seeds from those can become quite valuable, and probably they sell them. They do sell them. For more than we would ever pay for a seed in order to fund their hobby. Exactly. It's because they have to have... They have to have land. They have to have attention. And um, I'm assuming that they are using chemicals to keep away uh, squash bugs and things like that. I can't see how they would organically grow a pumpkin that big. Well, you know they don't because it has to have, it also has to have certain um, nutrients too. I mean, it's a real science to it. And in fact, on smithsonian.com, we're going to put this in our show notes. There's a whole thing that, a whole article that talks about how, Pumpkin, how they do it, what kind of seeds they choose, how they feed the pumpkins, what they, and it depends on where you're entering the pumpkin, what you can and cannot do too. There are requirements, but I am telling you, it is, it's just a thing of itself, the giant pumpkin world. And you, you've got to have a family and a spouse that's going to support you in growing the pumpkin because the pumpkin takes all the attention during the growing season. And I, All the attention. And like we said earlier, it's a long growing season. So the first thing, I do know this from that show, the first thing they do is when they plant their seeds and they have their vines out there, they choose one pumpkin per vine. So that entire vine feeds one particular pumpkin. And they might start with five different sets of vines, you know, to do this. And then eventually they just keep narrowing it down and narrowing it down until they say all our money, time and effort is behind this one pumpkin. It's a pretty impressive thing, but you wouldn't get to take vacation. You wouldn't get to do anything. Nope. Nope. Because every day you must go out and tend the pumpkin. The pumpkin is a beast and it requires your care and feeding. Exactly. Constantly. So I don't think you'll see um, Carol and Dee in their future growing any kind of extraordinarily large vegetable. And pumpkins aren't the only ones that are large, right, Carol? That's right. Uh, people try to grow world world's largest cabbage. And in fact, our friends at Bonnie Plants have a, uh, a program, and it's a good program because it gets kids out into the garden, where they will take, I think it's for third graders, to give the teacher the seeds and all the information to grow really, really large cabbages and then give away prizes for the largest cabbages grown by these kids in the third grade. So I think that's a good program because it gets people out there. And also, the cabbage can be planted really early, and by the time school's out, you know, they can figure out who's got the biggest and be done with it. It's not going to take over your entire summer. Right. Unless you're in Alaska. Well, yeah, if you're in Alaska, you're starting your seeds later anyway. It's a summer crop in Alaska probably. But it's right. a great idea, and there are people who also grow massively huge cabbages. Massively huge vegetables is a whole thing at, at various state fairs across the United States. But the pumpkin thing is just a deal of its own. It's kind of fascinating. It is. So we've established we are not growing large pumpkins, but we probably I'm probably going to grow pumpkins again. The one thing I would also say about pumpkins and really any vegetable crop is 
if you can rotate it to a different place in the garden every year, you will cut down on the possibility of pests because the pests have to go find it in its new location. Right. So crop rotation is big if you're going to grow organically the way you and I are growing our vegetables. Exactly. You have to, and I would even say if you aren't growing organically, you should use crop rotation anyway because it makes it less difficult for you anyhow. Um, You just want to, you also want to rotate crops because you don't want your soil to get depleted in a certain area because different crops have different nutrient needs. And guess what? Pumpkins need a lot. Like squash, they need a lot of nutrients, unlike green beans. So very different plants. And uh, we should also talk just a teeny bit about um, it's almost time to start ordering garden seeds. So we should remind our listeners of that. You know, it's time to start making your selections and deciding that what you're going to grow this year. And, of course, mine's a hot garden, so I'll tell you next time what I decided maybe what I'm growing this year in my potage. Right. And so if any listeners want to uh, chime in on some favorite vegetable varieties that they think we ought to try, they can send us an email at thegardenangelus at gmail.com. We would appreciate that. Or if they have questions about vegetables that they don't know whether they should grow them or not, send that to us. We'll try to help them out. Absolutely. And you can also reach us on our Facebook page and also on Instagram so and Twitter. So anywhere you want to. And plus, you can reach Carol and I individually, and we'll be glad to answer it here on the air. Yes. Maybe in a future podcast, we could offer a prize Ooh, to somebody fun. who gives us a question. That'd be fun. I'd like that. We'll I do love that. prizes. Well, that's about all we have for today, Dee. Great. You got anything else? Nope. That is it. That's all I got. Well, it's always a pleasure to talk gardening with you, Dee. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, too. Have a great day, Carol. You, too. Bye now. Bye. Bye.